um, hear this statement on Christology, what we believe about Christ, and then I'll move into prayer. Listen to these words crafted for us. We confess the mystery and wonder of God-made flesh and rejoice in our great salvation through Jesus Christ our Lord. With the Father and the Holy Spirit, the Son created all things, sustains all things, and makes all things new. Truly God, He became truly man, two natures and one person. He was born of the Virgin Mary and lived among us. Crucified, dead, and buried, he rose on the third day, ascended to heaven, and will come again in glory and judgment. For us, he kept the law, atoned for sin, and satisfied God's wrath. He took our filthy rags and gave us his righteous robe. He is our prophet, priest, and king, building his church interceding for us, and reigning over all things. Jesus Christ is Lord. We praise his holy name forever. But first, he had to come in the flesh. Let's pray. Father, there has already been a lot of glory in this worship service. For we have been focusing on you and your gift of your Son to sinners. I pray that your Spirit might stir up our hearts for worship today. That where we um, are prone to go on autopilot, because we've heard this story before, where we're um, tempted to uh, not listen to a familiar text and kind of zone out in the explanation of what Jesus did in the birth from the Virgin. I pray, God, that you would help us to appreciate the monumental event that was God the Son made flesh. I pray for that. I pray that we would give you appropriate worship this morning. I pray that we would delight in our hearts, our souls would sing because the Savior has come. I pray for that. I pray that you might help us to worship well in the, in the reading of the Word, the listening of the Word, and, uh, and, the, and the preaching of it. This is like no other event that we come together to do but to hear you speak to us, speak your eternal life-giving word. So we pray that you will help us in that great task this morning. I pray for those who are trapped in sin this morning. I pray for the gift of repentance. I pray, God, for new faith and renewed faith. I pray that you would release the captives today through the preaching of your word. I pray that you would strengthen the saints so they, that they might uh, not be too weary to make it all the way home. Pray for our gospel partners. I pray for Joel and Misty in particular. I pray that you would give them strength and vision and success 
as they raise support so they might go plant churches in Japan. I pray for uh, all who are sick. There's a lot of people that are ill right now, Lord, and, and uh, not, not, not getting all the strength back. I pray for uh, our friends that you would uh, renew us <clears throat> as if eagles were flying us. So I pray for that. I pray that you might help us to see the great urgency to share the good news of Jesus Christ with those who don't know him. So I pray that you would put that uh, burden on our hearts and that you would cause us not to be ashamed of the gospel, but to delight in it as we would speak of it often. So we pray for this. We pray that Jesus Christ might be exalted today and that we might draw near and hear of him. For we ask it in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Luke chapter 2 and uh, verses 1 through 7 is where we'll, where we'll be this morning. It's, the, it's Luke's uh, birth narrative, the birth narrative of Jesus. As you're making your way there, I uh, know this, I've entitled this sermon, There's Something Greater Going On. There's something greater going on. <clears throat> Maybe you're like me. I didn't grow up going to church. Maybe you have come to church later in life. I didn't read the Bible as a child. Uh, no one taught me about who Jesus was and why he came into the world. I just sort of picked up clues here and there from other people and things I would hear. Maybe you're like me. I, I, I did go to church with my family. Um, we, we went on Christmas Eve every year. We'd go to different churches, and we would hear different messages, and, and uh, we would maybe go to a friend's church, and that friend would maybe say a few words about who Jesus was to us or something like that. I would hear of the baby Jesus who was born in Bethlehem. It's a story that virtually everyone in America has, has heard and, and countless people around the world. We might sing a song like, O Little Town of Bethlehem, and there would be some kind of message of, the specialness of Jesus being born way back then. Maybe you're like me. I always had an impression that that was so, that Jesus' birth was somehow spiritual or magical or something happened that had never happened before when he was born, but I just didn't get it. I couldn't put all the pieces together. It seemed like something greater had gone on then that, than I could, that I could grasp. Well, whether you're like me or not in these ways, or perhaps whether you need to hear again of the love of God in the sending of Jesus, maybe you need those realities to be renewed in your heart today. Listen as we read of that event from, from Luke's pen in Luke 2. 1 through 7. This is God's word, friend. Pay, pay careful attention. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, 
because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. What are we to make of these seven verses that encapsulate this momentous time? Well, from them, I hope to to build a, a short but convincing case for you so that you will believe that this is true. The birth of Jesus was far greater than it appeared. Now, we're going to talk about that. I'm going to explain what I mean by that. But that's the theme of the text I would put to you. That's what I would ask you to hold on to and to see if I prove it from the text so that you're convinced that the birth of Jesus was far greater than it appeared. The way I hope to put this to you and walk you through the text is by simply making two observations from it. First, the circumstances of Jesus' birth were unimpressive. That's the first thing I, I, I want to show you. I, wanna, I want us to think about. That, that initially, as we just read the text, as we enjoy it and remember things about it and take note of it, that we see that his, the circumstances surrounding his birth were unimpressive. But secondly, I want us to think about some details in the text that make it obvious that something greater was going on. That while it appeared to be unimpressive, something incredible was taking place. So those are the two pieces. So let's uh, look at them one at a time. First, the circumstances of Jesus' birth are laid out for us as rather unimpressive. Even in these short verses, it is amply seen. How was Jesus' birth unimpressive? Well, notice that his birth was subject first to the command of a mere earthly king. The, the, the place of his birth, perhaps even the journey there brought the timing uh, forward. But the, 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 the birth of Jesus was subject to some earthly king. And when we consider who he is, that's pretty unimpressive. You would think there would be trumpet blasts from heaven. But instead, we've got this earthly king issuing this dictate. Look again at verses 1 and 3 there. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus, empire of the Roman Empire, that all the world should be registered, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. That word registered or census, depending on which translation you're reading from, is repeated there for emphasis. Now, you know, Christian, more about Jesus than just these seven verses. The Gospels are rich with details about Jesus' background, his life, his birth, and all of these things. And if we would consider just for a moment the genealogy of Jesus Christ, that is his family tree, he has a noble heritage. He is in the lineage of Abraham. Abraham was a great man of his day, and he was the one from whom the people of God came, and to whom great and eternal covenant promises were given from God. 
He was in Abraham's lineage. Jesus is also in the lineage of King David and King Solomon, the exalted kings of Israel. Jesus is born in the royal line, the line which God promised David would never end in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Jesus is also an ancestor of Zerubbabel, the one who ruled over God's people as they came out of exile and rebuilt the temple and the nation. This is Jesus' family tree. And yet Jesus Christ's birth was not treated by anyone as special. It was rather commonplace, even forgettable. And that's because at the time of Jesus' birth, there were no Jewish kings ruling over God's people. That very notion was surely thought to have been a thing of the ancient past by the Jews. No one even knew who had, cl- who had claim to the throne of David. And so no one treated Jesus as a king being born. No special preparations were made. No fanfare. No sacred rites. No worshipful attendance. No one cared or even noticed. Israel, you see, was a conquered state living under Roman occupation. Christ's birth played absolutely no role in the decision to order a census. The regional governor, Quirinius, I've been practicing that for a couple of days. The regional governor, Quirinius, never heard of Joseph and Mary, much less had Caesar ruling some 4,000 miles away, much less had he any knowledge of Jesus' coming birth. But because of the order issued from Rome, Much pregnant Mary had to take this long and difficult journey. Depending on who you read, it's somewhere between 80 and 100 miles. You know, we like to think of her on a donkey, but she may have walked. There's no record of of how they got from point A to point B. Think about that. Think about just the occasion. I mean, there's a lot of ladies in this room that have given birth. Can you imagine that journey late in, in your pregnancy? But wasn't Jesus to be born as the Savior of the world? Devout Simeon and the faithful Anna we read about later in this chapter, they had been waiting long years for the Savior's birth. Waiting for the one who would bring consolation, hope, redemption, light to the Gentiles. If the faith of God's people had always focused on the coming of this one, how could Jesus be him? if his birth had seemingly come about so haphazardly, unnoticed. Yes, Jesus' birth was unimpressive because it appeared to come at the whim of a powerful earthly king who didn't know who Jesus was or when he would be born. And if that wasn't enough, Jesus' birth was unimpressive because of how lowly it was. And I think we like to round up on this. But we need to think about what this text tells us about Jesus' birth. And maybe lay that against how you think he ought to have come into the world. Surely the Savior to be born, the Savior of all the world, would be born amidst fanfare and widespread celebration. Parades and parties for days and days. 
I mean, the announcement of royal pregnancies in England today are carefully orchestrated. I spent way too much time reading articles on this this week. When the baby comes, Buckingham Palace makes an official statement announcing the, the royal births. And even since medieval times, the birth of a royal has always been unofficially announced by a town crier. So officially, by the palace, there's literally a placard in front of Buckingham Palace that's put out there. And then also unofficially by these town criers shouting that the, the baby had been born. But Jesus wasn't born to famous parents. No one saw nobility in him. And so there were no royal announcements of any kind. I'm sorry, there were no announcements of any kind. It wasn't just that the Roman elite wasn't aware of his birth. Almost nobody was aware of what was going on in the little town of Bethlehem that wondrous day. The Savior was born to poor, unknown parents. The media of their day weren't hanging on the details of Mary's pregnancy or where in the line of succession to the throne Jesus would be born into, like when Princess Diana was pregnant or even Princess Catherine. That's Kate Middleton, if you need to know. No, nothing like that. Joseph and, Mary's were, Joseph and Mary were nobodies from nowhere. From the perspective of the world, nobody had ever heard of them. Their modest existence was even attested to. In, in, in the, later in the chapter, um, they bring a very poor offering of, of two birds at the temple instead of a lamb for people of, of greater means. We've, we've seen such allowances for poor people worshiping in Leviticus that we've been spending a, a, some weeks in. Not only did almost no one know Jesus was born, but he was also born under the cloud of dishonor. Consider first Mary's pregnancy. Verses 4 and 5 describe Joseph and Mary traveling from Nazareth to Bethlehem. And look how Mary is described there in verse 5. Let your eyes drop back in the book. He was going to be registered with Mary, his betrothed who was with child. His betrothed was with child. Joseph had initially thought, Mary had been unfaithful to him. In Matthew chapter 1 and verse 19, he had determined, because he was a righteous man, to divorce her quietly, though he could have made her an open spectacle, an object of public shame because of her condition. Perhaps others thought of her pregnancy that way, as shameful. We don't know. I don't have any details in the Scriptures to point to. But the fact that she's described as his betrothed who was with child, it raises that suspicion. It's certainly puzzling that when Joseph arrived at the town his family was from, there was no relative that could put him up. In a place in the world where being inhospitable to travelers was itself shameful, this may be hints at how the couple was thought of. Consider also where Jesus was born. Here we're getting down to it in verses 6 and 7. Look at, look at those verses again. While they were there, that is in Bethlehem, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. 
Now, public inns were very crude in those days, friends. It's not like what we think of, like a little bed and breakfast, a little cute spot for a vacation. Public inns were really covered stalls that opened to an area where the animals were kept. It was not a nice place to stay. But as verse 7 tells us, not even one of those was available as a delivery room for the Christ to be born. So these little kind of, you know, uncomfortable, smelly stalls that were near where the animals were, not any of those were available. And so Mary and Joseph took their place with the animals. No sterile hospital room. Exhausted, no doubt, from the journey. The King of Heaven came into the lowliest of birthplaces among the stink and dirt and snorts of beasts. Kent Hughes captures the dishonor of his birth well. He writes this way, Joseph probably, probably wept as much as Mary did. Seeing her pain, the stinking barnyard, their poverty, people's indifference, the humiliation, and the sense of utter helplessness, feeling shame at not being able to provide for young Mary on the night of her travail. If we imagine that Jesus was born in a freshly swept county fair stable, we miss the whole point. It was wretched, scandalous. There was sweat and pain and blood and cries. The earth was cold and hard. The smell of birth mixed with the stench of manure and acrid straw made a contemptible bouquet. There was no celebration, friends. There were no crowds. There was no one to help Joseph in the delivery. There was no one to help clean off the baby or wrap, them in, wrap him in cloth. He was born in squalor and dishonor. How could this be the Savior if he came into the world in this way? His birth was unimpressive because it was subject to Caesar's will. It was, it was unimpressive because it happened under this cloud of dishonor and because it seems to contradict what had already been promised and even celebrated beforehand. Let me just, just give you a few things that we've already read in, in, in the Gospel accounts that preceded his birth. An angel had announced that the Virgin Mary would give birth to the Son of God. Jan read that for us. Remember one sentence from it or two. The angel had said, You will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And yet, this is his birth? The very birth narrative seems to contradict the announcement. Mary believed, though, what she heard and sang of this wonderful news come from heaven. Luke 1.46 and following her Magnificat. Listen to just a few words from it. It begins, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices at God my Savior. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. Think of where she was when she gave birth. Blessed? Zechariah, too, sang of God's mercy in the coming of the Christ child. Chapter 1 and verse 68 and 9, just before our text. 
His song begins, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for He has visited and redeemed His people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us. He has visited His people in the mud and the stench. How could this be? How could the Savior be born under such circumstances? I mean, was the angelic announcement even true? How could the Savior's birth be so unimpressive? The answer is that there was obviously something far greater going on. Something obvious because of what we see in the text. Not just a feeling we have. Not like when before I was a Christian and I was growing up and I just sort of had this impression that something was special. No, no, friends. We're talking about details in the text here that convinces that something far greater was going on than this mere unimpressive birth. And that is cause for soaring delight. It should make your heart sing, especially if you know you're a sinner in need of someone to save you from God's judgment and coming wrath. Because that's what happened when Jesus came into the world. Do you know how many babies are born each year? Do you have a guess? Think, think of a number in your head. I'll tell you the answer I found and you can see how close you are. One estimate puts the annual number at 140 million children born every year. You want the daily count? 385,000 every day. Now, I don't know how many babies were born the day Mary gave birth to Jesus, but I'm going to say that there were a lot. So why was this lowly birth, this one, cause for celebration? The first reason is this. God was controlling the circumstances of Christ's birth even though it may have looked like He wasn't. I pointed out that the circumstances were seemingly under the control of a powerful king and Caesar and, and his governors like Quirinius. The king's registration seemed to be the only factor that would dictate where Jesus would be born. But we must look at the text more closely than that. We must think more deeply of what the Scriptures teach about the sovereign hand of God and the events of men. I mean, we could go to a lot of places this morning, but listen to just two Proverbs. I just want them to be ringing in your ears while we move forward. Proverbs 16, verse 9, The heart of a man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Proverbs 21, 1, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever He wills. This is what we see happening in our text. It's the same principle at work. First, think about Caesar's decree and how it required Joseph to return to his hometown. Verses 4 and 5 is where we find that. I've read it a couple of times now. Through the command of a great earthly king, the king of kings would be born in Bethlehem. But it would happen just as God had promised long ago through the prophet Micah. This idea did not originate in Caesar Augustus's mind. I stopped short when I quoted Zechariah's song a little while ago. Look, at ba look back at chapter 1, 69 and 70, just across the page if you have your Bible open. 
Zechariah had sung of God visiting and redeeming his people through this child who would be born as their Savior, this, this horn of strength. But he finishes his thought in verse 70. As he, all these things would happen as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. Caesar Augustus had ordered everyone throughout his kingdom to go get registered so that he might collect taxes from them. Even people from an unimportant, dusty little town thousands of miles from his throne. And yet God was ordering all the events surrounding the birth of the Messiah, friends, using Caesar for one of the key details, though he didn't know it. You see, 700 years earlier, the Lord had declared his intention. Micah chapter 5. You, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one, is to, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose origin is from old, from ancient days. He shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and he shall be their peace." 700 years before Caesar issued this decree, God had prophesied through, through Micah that it would take place. Friends, God was in control of the circumstances of Jesus' birth. Here's something else about that correlation between Micah and our text. Micah spoke into a situation not unlike Joseph and Mary's day. Micah ministered when another foreign king was trying to inflict its will over Israel. And he, like Caesar, ultimately acted in accordance with what God had ordained. So what's my point? That God uses the powerful in this world to do his bidding, though they don't even know it. The heart of the king is sitting in the hand of God. He turns it in the way that he desires. And so when Mary and Joseph followed Caesar's command, something greater was going on. They were following God's eternal plan for the birth of a Savior. By the way, this was no isolated incident. It's not just this event that God had controlled in the, the life of Jesus we would see this work out throughout uh, the Gospels. There's too many to list. Let me give you three. In Matthew 2, verse 13, we read of God's angel warning Joseph of Herod's plot to kill Jesus, so they hightailed it to Egypt. So Jesus wouldn't be killed before the cross. The Gospel records many, many times the Jews sought to kill Jesus because of his teaching, but somehow, miraculously, supernaturally, he slips through the crowd unharmed. John 7.30 is just one example of that. Or what of Jesus' interaction with Pilate at the end of his earthly life? Pilate had said to him, Do you not know that I have authority to crucify you? And you remember the response? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Something far greater was going on in, in those events, friends. And something far greater was also going on when Caesar ordered everyone to be registered in their hometown. It spoke of God Most High, not some earthly king reigning over the world and over the circumstances of, of the birth of Jesus. 
The B.D. Anya Buile said it this way, even when men rule for their own ends, God is at work to fulfill his plans. I like that succinct way of thinking about it. God's plans would indeed come to pass for the Savior's birth, even down to what little hamlet Mary would be in when it was time for her to give birth. Well, what else was going on behind the scenes beyond what most people knew? Not only was God in control of the circumstances of Jesus' birth, there's something else. This was no ordinary birth. Did you hear me? This was no ordinary birth. While there may have been hundreds of thousands of babies born that day, I don't know. We don't have the data. There was, there was and has only ever been one virgin birth. Verse 5 again, Mary, his betrothed, was with child. Now Mary being described that way, Mary being described as Joseph's betrothed, is a strange way to refer to his wife who was traveling with him. It may be because it is referring to the fact that their marriage had not yet been consummated. Joseph and Mary had not come together intimately yet. Matthew chapter 1 and verse 25 says this very plainly. If that is the case, this little detail calling her his betrothed instead of his wife, it reminds us of something the angel had explained to Mary. Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? How is it possible that I'm going to give birth to this this exalted son? The angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Though no one seemed to notice Mary giving birth out where the animals were kept, though no one had heard any royal announcements, about the birth that was about to happen. No one, though no one paid attention save the carpenter and his wife, something far greater was going on that day. The eternal Son of God had come into the world of flesh through a virgin's womb. The Lord who made the heavens and the earth together with the Father and Spirit humbled Himself, lowered Himself from His abode in heaven to the filth of that Bethlehem barnyard. True God became true man, one person now with two natures because of the virgin birth. No other birth was like that birth that day. But there's something else. There's something else that was greater that was going on in Jesus being born in that way. Sinners were being taught that humility precedes glory. Lowliness and filth come before exaltation. Rejection is the way to honor. Look at verse 7 there. She gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Can you imagine trying to help your wife give birth in those conditions. No one helping. No one offering resources. 
No one's saying, I'll hold the baby while you clean up your wife or help her. No, there was no glory amidst the livestock, no honor in the feeding trough that day. Friends, but Christ would have His glory. He would have His glory. Exaltation would come, but later, after He had done what He came to do to save sinners. And it's heard in the references to King David in our text. Joseph took his wife who would soon give birth to the city of David. Why? Why did he take take, uh, his wife to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem? Because he was of the house and lineage of David, which means Jesus would be of that same house and lineage. And God had promised David that through his offspring, his kingdom would never end. It had happened long ago, famously, but long ago in these people's minds as they thought of it. 2 Samuel chapter 7, let me read a little bit of the Davidic covenant, God's promise made to King David. I will raise up your offspring after you, and I will establish his kingdom. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. That promise was fulfilled in the birth of Jesus and what what He would do to save sinners the angel had already announced to the Virgin Mary that she would give birth to a child who would, who would fulfill this prophecy. If we just read the beginning of Luke all together, we would see this. Gabriel had told her that Jesus would be given the throne of his father David, Luke 1.32. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. This is a direct link back to this Davidic covenant. The angel said to Mary, your son will fulfill this promise. But did you hear that little part in the middle of the Davidic promise there where God said, when he sins, I'll punish him through the rods of men? Did you hear that part? That's a strange prophecy about Jesus, isn't it? Friends, Jesus Christ is holy. Sinless. Just as Gabriel had said, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Chapter 1, verse 35. He has never and will never commit sin. So why this little prophecy about him being punished for sin? It's because his passion would come before his throne. He would receive the stripes of men, the whips, the cross, to pay for the sins of those who came to save. He would have his glory, but he'd have to go through his passion to get it. And that's what the circumstances of his birth tell us. It it foretells that he's going to be made low before he's raised up. Christ's humiliation would go all the way down, not just in the mud with the animals. He would go all the way down into the grave. He would die for sinners. But that would be the way to his exaltation. 
For Christ would rise from the dead, ascend to heaven, and be seated where? At the right hand of God, on the throne of David, he would sit and rule forever. That's where he's at now. The birth of Jesus, you see, was far greater than it appeared. The circumstances surrounding his birth were, yes, unimpressive. Nobody knew he was coming. Nobody cared. It appeared that that how Jesus was born was simply because Caesar wanted every nickel from everyone in the, in, in the kingdom. What's more, the circumstances of his birth were the lowliest one could imagine. I mean, can you come up with a more disgusting, dishonorable place and method to be born? Maybe you see Jesus' birth this way still, unimpressive. Maybe you're like me, like I used to be. And hear the accounts of Jesus' birth, be like, wow, that's a bummer. And not really understand why. But maybe you're like I was growing up too, where you have this inkling that there was something special about that birth. Something worthy of your soul's delight. And you'd be right if you have that impression. God controlled every detail of His Son's miraculous entrance into the world through a virgin's womb. And He came into this world not to be served, but to serve. He he came to be a ransom for many. He didn't come to be celebrated, but to be rejected, dishonored, and killed. That was the mission. He came so that He might die for sinners and in His resurrection defeat that death so that all who turn to Him in faith would be forgiven and follow Him and surround His throne to King David's throne, the greater Son of King David, the Lord Jesus Christ. The birth of Jesus was greater than it appeared. And so, what is your response to that today? Maybe today is the day that that the Spirit of God is putting it all together for you so that you would see the, the great import for your soul that Jesus was born in Bethlehem that day. Or maybe your faith has grown cold through the circumstances of your life. Friends, we all suffer. There are great trials that we walk through, not unlike the The birth narrative here for Mary and Joseph. Perhaps you can feel the struggle of life pressing in on you. But friends, turn again in faith that God has plans for His people. Not merely to suffer, but to follow the pattern that Jesus laid laid for us that day. That yes, there will be suffering, but glory's on the other side. But only as you draw near to Christ can you, can you experience that and celebrate that. So wherever you are today, whether you need to come to Christ in the first place, come and worship Him. Turn from your sins and trust in Him. And, and, and if you need to have your heart stirred again for worship of the Savior, friends, Remember what was going on behind the scenes. Something far greater than simply an unimpressive birth. Take a few minutes of quiet reflection. Ladies, I'll have you come. And we're going we're gonna to end in silent night and then I'll pronounce a benediction.
But take a few moments. We're going to just take a beat and just reflect on the Word of God before we sing. Thank you, friends.